Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Brooke Andrade, Director of the Library at the Center and your host for this episode. In 1772, in the case of Somerset v. Stewart, an English court found that the concept of slavery had no recognition under English law. The case has long been considered instrumental in the eventual abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, but emancipation in England and elsewhere was not so easily delivered. The lives and working conditions endured by Black people in London and elsewhere in England, even after the court's decision, paint a more complex picture of forced labor for people of African descent and the arduous process required to secure their liberty. Our guest today is Tony Frazier, Associate Professor of History at North Carolina Central University, where his research covers the social and legal history of Blacks in 18th century Great Britain, Atlantic slavery and emancipation, and African American history. As a fellow this year, Tony has been working on a new book tentatively titled Slaves Without Wages, Runaway Black Slaves and Servants in 18th Century London. Welcome, Tony, and thank you for taking the time to have this conversation about your work. Thank you, Brooke, for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation today. So the foundation of your book project is this English court case, Somerset v. Stewart. Can you tell me about the case and who Somerset was? James Somerset was an enslaved body servant to a British custom official, Charles Stewart, who was also uh, a slave owner in Virginia. He purchased Somerset in 1749. Uh, Somerset basically crisscrossed the Atlantic with Charles Stewart. Uh, as a British custom official, Charles Stewart returned to England uh, in 1769, and Somerset accompanied him upon his return. Somerset uh, fled uh, upon arrival in England, as many others had done throughout the 18th century. So it wasn't a new thing to have uh, an enslaved person accompany their ship captain or their owner back to England and flee. This was the practice that we could find runaways even in the 1600s uh, in the United Kingdom. So Somerset was continuing a tradition that was existent long before him. But in this particular instance, Charles Stewart attempted to uh, recapture Somerset through the uh, abolitionist Granville Sharp and others. Somerset's capture and subsequent resale into Jamaica aboard a ship bound for Jamaica to resell him back into slavery was stopped. And he was remanded to a court, and this devolved into what we call the Somerset versus Stewart case of 1772, which was presided over by Lord Chief Justice Mansfield. And in this court case that took many months to finish, and there were many attempts by Mansfield to end the trial before it had his reckoning, But at the trial uh, and at the sentencing where he freed uh, Somerset, one of the things that Mansfield argued was that there was no positive law to sanction slavery. And it had never existed so that slavery never existed. And you could not force a slave out of the realm of England. Now, this overturned an earlier earlier opinion that took place in 1729 known as the York Talbot opinion by uh, two major justices in the English court system. And their after dinner opinion carried sway in the legal realm, even up to 1772. So the idea that you could not force an enslaved person from the realm of England was the issue in the Somerset case. So Mansfield's narrow ruling stating that you could not force Somerset 
out of the realm of England took on a larger ramification in terms of how it was viewed not only in England but viewed uh, in America and how it's viewed uh, even often now. You'll you hear the statement that uh, England ended slavery in 1772. It's always interesting to hear that. And so um, one of the things I'm trying to do with my book is ask us to look again at the court case, but ask us to look again how slavery actually ended rather than uh, just accepting that the Somerset case ended slavery. So uh, it's very tricky, probably caused a lot of problems, but uh, it'll be my contribution. So what is your evidence that this needs to be reexamined? When you're dealing with uh, black British subjects in terms of uh, the less famous black people, you're not going to have a plethora of sources that you can just like, there's 10 boxes here and there's 10 boxes there. What you have to do is tease this information out. So one of the primary things that I started uh, thinking about over the last decade was using newspaper advertisements in the British uh, newspapers. We know that newspaper advertisements are very prominent in American slavery, but this was an opportunity to examine them on the British side. And one of the things that I found very striking was that as I started collecting newspaper advertisements even prior to 1772 and after 1772, it dawned on me that uh, you have people fleeing even after the court case. And I started to wonder, uh, is our acceptance of this case truly the end? And one of the other things that started driving me mad, so I draw on parish registers. You draw on court cases dealing with the Old Bailey criminal records. You draw on memoirs, autobiographies even literature, even art. So you you combine an amalgamation of a lot of sources to try to create a composite story to understand this. But the main thing I started focusing on, once again, was the newspaper advertisements. And it dawned on me that Somerset did not end slavery. It was actually slavery after Somerset. You have forced kidnappings taking place. So you also have runaways who are fleeing after 1772. And what ends up happening is uh, these are not huge numbers. I think at the University of Glasgow, um, I think the numbers in that uh, online database for runaways is 932. So sometimes uh, people make the assumption that that is all the runaways, but that is not the case because that's a database, and then I have runaways that are not in that database. And I'm quite certain that the numbers of runaways probably will never be known. There was never any census taken of the exact uh, black population. Uh, In 1764, the numbers were as high as 30,000. A few years later, There was a newspaper article about taxing the number of black people in England that was at 20,000. At the court trial, Mansfield said that it was 10 to 15,000 black people in England. So I think we'll never know in that late 18th century period how many black people actually existed. I don't think we'll ever have an accurate number on runaways. But what I'm attempting to do is ask us to reframe our understanding of how slavery ended. I think that you can pick up a plethora of books, (laughs) articles, and even just common conversation whereby... People will simply say, uh, they'll tell you about Granville Sharp, the famous abolitionist who helped so many blacks, uh, Lord Mansfield and his role. And the story will sound the same. But what often does not happen is no one is going to stop and say, well, let's talk about who Jonathan Strong was, who Sharp helped in 1765. No one is going to ask you about Thomas Lewis in the Lewis versus Stapleton case one year prior to the Somerset case. His story isn't going to be known. Uh, Even James Somerset. So the individuals whose actions, which I call self-emancipation, whose agency helped create this moment that led to the court trial, their narrative tends to be shunted to the side, and we only focus on the lawyers and the judges. So I'm asking that we reexamine not only 
those three individuals, but all these uh, nameless individuals who have names or in these British newspapers and look at their agency because they're running away, even as the 18th century case law remains, has so much ambiguity within it. Uh, at moments in 1706, there, England ground is too pure for slave to exist. And then you have the York Talbot opinion. So you have all of these different legal cases. So as all these things are taking place, black people are fleeing throughout the 18th century. Now, so while the lawyers and the judges are debating these issues, black people are seeking their freedom. They are striking out for their freedom. And their owners and their enslavers are seeking to recapture them in the newspapers. So when I started thinking about how does slavery end in England, let's remove the focus from the lawyers and judges. Let's look at these individuals who are self-emancipating themselves. They are ending slavery for themselves. It's not the law. And what, and what I really want to get us to stop doing is just depending on the law to understand how, what freedom meant to black people in England. So how did you come to this project? I actually came to this project in a graduate class. We were reading about the Somerset case, but I didn't know at that time that I would be sitting here talking to you about let's get rid of our legal understanding of slavery, let's talk about self-emancipation. All, all of those things came much later. But the initial interest in this case came in a, a graduate class on the African presence in Europe. So the more I read and the more I kept digging and looking at different primary sources and other secondary sources, I said, wow, this, this just doesn't make a lot of sense, the way we understand this. So it just became like something that just constantly uh, just motivated me to try to learn more. So that meant that I had to go into the archives and pull things out, spend many a long day uh, at the microfilm room, Sometimes you may spend an entire day or entire three days at the microfilm room and find no runaways, and then some days you'll get one. Uh, so that became part of the process, trying to find other sources to build this understanding of black British life without great sources. I think we're all familiar with the story of Equiano, Cuyango, and Sancho, who left, you know, left their autobiographies and other writings. Those things are very important, but this is a different look at the black community in England that isn't about the what we would call the literate blacks or the famous blacks. And I was struck by, if it hadn't been for happenstance or circumstances, some of these individuals could have been a Equiano, could have been a, a Sancho or Cuyango, particularly with the abilities and talents that they have, the multiplicity of languages that they speak in these ads, uh, their skill sets. And one of the other striking things about this research has been that this is a very diasporic study in terms of these individuals are coming from Africa. They're coming from uh, the what we now call the United States. So they're coming from all over the globe to arrive in, in England. So these are not simply just uh, British subjects. These are actually people who are coming from a very diasporic connection. So it lets you also know that they're, you think about Julius Scott's uh, work and you're thinking about how um, these enslaved people are able to communicate and, and you can definitely see that as a process as well across the Atlantic with all this type of movement. That's one of the striking things about trying to do this work is seeing all this movement of these peoples, men and women, across this, but also trying to tell their story and what, how did they free themselves. That's been the thrust of it. So do you feel like you've been using sources that have largely been ignored? Yes, I think they've been ignored, but I also think uh, this is hard work. But this is the work that historians do. We're trying to piece together things. We're trying to tell a story. In terms of shaping this into a book project, that was always one of the uh, the tough things. I was trying to tell too many stories in one thing. So now trying to tell one singular story 
and developed that and and as I've continued to write and building chapters and things of that nature it's made it much more easier but it's also a, a tough chore because I have to tease these things out and you have to be careful when you tease them out because you don't want to veer into fiction so you always want to come back to the evidence and, and you have to draw on multiple sources of evidence it's not just going to be newspaper advertisements as, as I said parish registers art, literature, uh, anything that you can find black people within it in these type of 18th century sources. Very scant sources, not a lot of things left from this type of population. So I know that spending days at the microfilm machine is not your favorite way. No, no, no. <laughs> I actually enjoyed it. Uh, I made a deal with myself a long time ago when I entered graduate school. If I ever showed up at the library and I did not want to go through the microfilm, that I had to pick another career. That is dedication. <laughs> so I do want to hear, though, about a particular transformative document or moment in the archive. Actually, uh, there was an individual uh, runaway, uh, Henry King, and his master was lamenting as he was seeking to recapture him that Henry had written him a very indolent letter as if to say, I'm not returning back to you. I am gone. And him writing about this enslaved individual not only has the ability to write, and he tried to signal back to him in the newspaper, let's talk. But this individual basically wrote him and told him, you know, I am leaving and I'm running away. So I thought that was very interesting. I've seen that in the the, uh, languages, finding someone who speaks Arabic, French, and Dutch, who probably participated in the Seven Years' War as someone's body servant. These are just amazing people whose lives were ensnared in slavery, and they're just so multi-talented in the restrictions of slavery and the harm that it caused to these people is, is tragic. Well, I'm so glad that you're here at the center this year telling the, these stories that haven't been told before. Thank you so much. We look forward to putting your book on our shelf very soon. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center. 